Hello everyone, my name is Samantha Holloway. I'm a council member of the European Wound Management Association, chair of the UMA Education Committee and Teacher Network, and I'm also a reader based in the School of Medicine at Cardiff University in Wales. You're now listening to a UMA podcast by the European Wound Management Association. Are you curious about the latest trends and topics within wound management? Then this UMA podcast might be for you. Today I'm pleased to be discussing the topic of skin injuries related to personal protective equipment, prevention and management. This is a follow-up to the UMA webinar that we ran on the 30th of April devoted to this topic. Due to a high volume of questions and level of interest that we received during the webinar, we have decided to follow up with this podcast. In this episode, we'll be answering some of the questions raised from the webinar. I'm pleased to welcome three guests to the studio. Elena Conde Montero, a dermatologist at the Hospital Universitario Infanta Leonor in Spain, and Elena was one of the speakers from the webinar on the 30th of April. I'm also delighted to welcome Karen Uzi. Karen is Professor of Skin Integrity and Director for the Institute of Skin Integrity and Infection Prevention. Karen has been working with Ahmed Geffen on documents related to device-related pressure ulcers, and also more recently, personal protective equipment and skin injuries. And also welcoming this evening, Kimberly LeBlanc. Kim is an advanced practice nurse, chair of the Wound Ostomy Continence Institute in Canada. And Kim was the lead author on the Canadian Personal Protective Equipment and Skin Injuries Guideline. Welcome, everybody. Hello, Sam. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. A number of guidelines have already been published on personal protective equipment and skin injuries, some of which you've been involved in. As a reminder to our listeners, you can find these guidelines on the Yuma website linked to this podcast episode. So I'd like to start this evening's episode with a question for each of you. Could you outline the three to four main pieces of advice to prevent personal protective equipment related skin damage? In particular, things that are critical, in your opinion, and that all healthcare professionals should be mindful of at the moment. Uh, Perhaps, Karen, you'd like to start. Yeah, thank you, Sam. Well, we've seen quite a lot of images in the media recently that have been um, displaying all this skin damage. And probably one of the best images was on the front cover of Time magazine. And that really highlighted, I think, to the general public as well as clinicians about the damage personal protective equipment can cause to our clinicians out there. So in clinical practice, I think we've seen PPE causing damage mainly through the use of medical face masks and goggles. So I've I've been looking a lot into this, as you've said, with AMIT and looking also at guidelines and speaking to staff. And perhaps my three main pieces of advice are, it's essential that staff are fit tested prior to using any of this equipment. And that is so important that they don't just grab equipment and go out into the clinical areas, which they wouldn't do. But fit testing must be done prior to using any equipment. Um, Staff have also spoken about using wound dressings to prevent this damage, which is good. But they should pick a dressing that prevents friction and skin damage. And then that equipment must be fit tested again. So if they've had it fit tested prior to the dressing being put on, then it's going to have to be fit tested again because it's going to be different once the dressings are in place. And my third piece of advice would be that really pressure should be relieved every two hours if staff can do it, but in a safe environment. 
And I know that's really difficult, but you've got to protect your skin as well. So if you can, go and relieve the mask from your face and the goggles. I also think that all healthcare professionals should be aware that in clinical settings, that these PPE-related injuries have the potential to introduce um, bacteria, fungi and viruses into the skin where the skin's been broken. Mm -hmm. And if we talk about that, then we can also assume that the coronavirus could penetrate through the skin and reach the bloodstream with potentially fatal results to the affected healthcare professional. So I honestly, Sam, I cannot say enough about how those masks and that equipment must be fit tested mm-hmm. and staff must relieve the pressure if they feel that the skin is being damaged. Thank you, Karen. Uh, Kim, would you like to follow on? Well, that's hard to follow, but yes. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree with what Karen has said. You know, paramount is that we have proper mask fit testing. But I think one of the things that we can do to build on that is that care of your skin and prevention should start at home. So before the healthcare professional even leaves their home, they should be washing and drying their face well. They should be providing, uh, applying their moisturizer to their face at least an hour beforehand. It's really important that it's, it's dried really well and absorbed into the skin before they're applying their PPE. And that, you know, upon removal, that they're washing their face well, you know, um, quite thoroughly as well. So I think that, you know, if we do a little bit of prevention in terms of skin care, it can go a long way to prevent some of the PPE-related skin injuries we're seeing. While in Canada, we are seeing a fair number of those pressure injuries that you know are so sensational on the news, we are seeing probably more predominantly an increase in acne especially among our younger nurses. So, you know, one of the things that we're really focusing on with them is proper skin care and going back to, you know, using good skin cleansers, depending on the level of oil they have in their skin. And, you know, certainly if they have a dermatologist working with their dermatologist to determine which is the best one for them. And then, um, you know, really following that regime to make sure that their skin is cleansed and moisturized well. Mm-hmm. So you know, that would be one big piece. The other piece that goes along with that is in terms of hand care. So we know that, uh, you know, eczema is greatly exacerbated by prolonged glove use and uh, hand washing. And that certainly becomes a huge issue as well. And, you know, we have nurses with dry cracked hands from it. And we know that you know, using the alcohol-based um, uh, hand hand rubs are actually better in the long run than using uh, soap and water repeatedly. So, you know, using that alcohol hand rub, but making sure that it's really dried well before they put gloves on. If it's mm-hmm. still, their hands are still wet when they put their gloves on, they're going to have issues with their skin. You know, and using a good moisturizer regularly, we've had some really good recommendations that have come out from um, the from a provincial standpoint here in Canada from our infection control agency as well as public health, and they put out best practice recommendations for hand hygiene and care for healthcare professionals. And what they have recommended is that healthcare professionals apply moisturizer at least an hour before wearing gloves and that it should be at least 70% fat content to make sure that they're really getting a good moisturization for their hands. 
So I think, you know, those are some of the key points that I would really like to emphasize, you know, on top of what Karen has said in terms of the need to relieve pressure on a regular basis, mm-hmm. make sure that mask is well fit. And if you're going to put anything between the mask, um, you know, and your skin, to please make sure that it is uh, fit tested. Go speak to your health and safety at your institution and make sure that it is uh, you're safe. Yeah, good. Okay, thanks, Kim. Just a quick follow up question uh, about pressure relief. So Karen mentioned every two hours. Uh, What are the recommendations uh, that the Canadian guidelines are suggesting on pressure relief? So we're suggesting every two hours, but the real issue is that unfortunately, we have a PPE shortage in Canada. Mm-hmm. So many of our nurses are provided one to two masks per shift, and not just nurses, healthcare professionals in general are provided one to two masks per shift, depending on where they're working. So they're not ha- they do not have the opportunity to remove their mask. Mm-hmm. You know, the mask goes on. If you're only given one mask, um, you know, you have to think about when do they get a drink of water? Mm-hmm. When do they eat? Um, you know, in some cases, some nurses are not eating or drinking for eight to 12 hours. Mm. Um, that's the, you know, that's one of the realities that, uh, that we're being faced with. So I think, you know, it's really important that we, uh, we have to realize that while we have these guidelines, we need to make sure that it is, uh, realistic to follow. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Kim. So um, Kim touched on a number of dermatological issues uh, that seem to be a problem with PP and skin injuries. And that leads us nicely into asking Elena, who is a dermatologist, about maybe her three to four main pieces of advice and, and whether that's related to specifically dermatological issues. (laughs) <laughs> I have to say that it's quite difficult to give uh, pieces of advice after Karen and Kim, but I will highlight some dermatological issues that uh, have been said. Uh, first of all, there's no right moisturizer for all patients. Um, the moisturizer should be chosen according to skin characteristics of the specific area of the body. It will be different for the hands and than the face. And as Kim said, uh, we should uh, also consider special skin conditions such as acne, rosacea, and dermatitis and acne is uh, very frequent these days. And secondly, uh, regarding hand dermatitis, the use of paraffin products and coverage with cotton gloves or other skin protective fabrics is an interesting strategy during the hours of night rest to increase the penetration of the ointment. And we have to take advantage, as uh, uh, Karen and Kim said, of these hours of rest. And last but not least, both of them have talked about... um, shifts. Those professionals who spend more hours with this equipment are more likely likely to develop more severe lesions. Uh, There's a Chinese study talking about this. This is something we see in our clinical practice every day. So blisters, erosions and ulcers uh, are uh, easier to appear in those professionals that spend lots of hours with these PPE. So it's essential to prevent uh, these uh, long shifts from occurring. Okay. Thank you, Elena. So we move on to another question from the webinar. 
which was uh, for those healthcare professionals who work in a home care setting, what do you recommend in terms of PPE use? So, Karen, have you got any thoughts on, on that particularly? Yeah, it's very pertinent, really, Sam, especially in the UK, because we've had lots of media reports again about lack of PPE use in these care homes because people can't get hold of it and then are not quite so sure what they should be using. But I would say the residents has been diagnosed as being COVID positive, then the same PPE should be used as will be in the acute setting. It should be no different, really. Mm-hmm. Um, face masks really should be worn in care homes at all times, whether there's suspected cases of coronavirus or not for protection. And if we look at our national guidance, particularly in England, the re- recommended PPE for care settings includes a fluid repellent face mask, using an apron, gloves and eye protection. And that's mainly this risk of any sort of splashing or exposure to the respiratory droplets. Mm-hmm. And what we've been saying is that plastic eye protector reusable goggles can be suitable. But the thing to remember more than anything else is that hand washing is essential in any environment. So that must be done regardless of whether or not you're putting your PPE equipment on, your hands must be washed regularly. And before you put anything on, and as Kim was saying about using the usual hand protectors as well to stop your skin getting very sore. Mm. Okay, thank you, Karen. And Kim, what about in Canada in terms of home care settings and PPE use? Is is there guidelines that you're following? So I just would like to clarify, um, when you're talking home care settings, are you talking about care in the individual's home, what we call home care, or are you talking about care in a nursing home or an old age home? Um, I guess we could mention both. Uh, The question, uh, this was from the webinar, so it wasn't specific. Um, And I don't think it was a question from the UK. So I understand the terminology may be different. So perhaps just give us an overview of both, if you can, Kim. Sure. So for us, much like Karen said, the guidelines for PPE use are pretty well standardized across the continuum of care. So we have an expectation that there will be a certain level of PPE that's used no matter the setting. So, you know, nurses are asked to wear masks um, along with their uh, fluid repellent goggles and uh we have we call them isolation gowns, uh, not aprons. I like that. I'm going to call them aprons from now on, Karen. Uh, but we, um, you know, so this is the expectation, and those should be changed. In theory, should be changed between each patient because of our um, shortage of PPEs. Nurses are wearing their face shields and masks for the duration of their shift. Um, sometimes they'll get two per shift, so they can change it and have lunch. Otherwise, they they leave that on even when they're driving their cars uh, from uh, from place to place. Mm. Uh, you know, ideally, in the ideal world, we'd be changing them between each patient. Mm-hmm. Hand washing is a key. The nurses in our community use alcohol-based hand rubs in between patients and obviously multiple times during patient care. They don gloves and you know, they do as well put on a fresh isolation gown for each patient. Mm-hmm. Long-term care, what, what we call long-term care, which is nursing homes or care homes, in those cases as well, the idea is that we would, they would follow st- the standard PPE use. The reality is, once again, there is a shortage. 
Uh, however, you know, the other issue we have is having proper places to don and doff the equipment. Mm. So you normally you would have a, you know, a secure room or place outside of the patient's room where you could put on the equipment and take it off. The reality is they're having to do this in the hallway. So it's not ideal, but, um, you know, that's a huge challenge for them is, you know, how, um, how can they maintain that? And in some instances, you can't have alcohol-based hand rub or even soap readily available in the individual patient's room because if the person has advanced dementia and confusion, they may drink or eat the soap and so that becomes yeah. or the hand rub. So that yeah. becomes an issue. So, you know, trying to set up a safe environment is very, very challenging. So on, on top of having to deal with the their own injury risk, there's all those other challenges to keep themselves safe. I guess there's a lot to be learned. Um, I mean, hopefully this never happens again. There's a lot to be learned from what um, healthcare professionals are having to deal with in different care settings. Okay, thank you, Karen and Kim. So another question uh, from the webinar related to what recommendations you would give for cleaning lesions caused by PPE. One of the webinar participants asked whether it's possible to use hypochlorous acid solution for this purpose. Elena, would you like to answer that question? Thank you, Sam. Cleansing will depend on the skin lesion. So lesions in patients with acne-prone skin or dermatitis uh, will be special. But if we focus on wounds related to PPE, these lesions should be considered clean acute wounds. The cleansing of acute wounds is controversial. In fact, it's not clear whether cleansing is even, even necessary or whether soap and water or water alone is better. Mm-hmm. And uh, for acute wounds, the, the general use of antiseptics is not recommended. Uh, however, it has been suggested that the use of some antimicrobial solutions might prevent secondary infections due to excessive touching of these PPE lesions because it's very difficult to avoid touching your face when you have a lesion there and uh, if you add the PPE it's uh, even more difficult. So one of the suggested products is hypochlorous acid solution which has a broad spectrum of activity against a wide range of bacteria and viruses and additionally this solution is safe and well tolerated in the face and the skin around the eyes and it has been shown not to impede wound healing. Okay, thank you. That's interesting. Kim, is there anything from um, the Canadian perspective on cleansing and whether it would be recommended to use such a solution as hypochlorous acid? So we haven't reached, uh, That's you know, it's a great question. I, I thank whoever's asked it because we've had a lot of debate on that. We don't have any strong recommendations out yet. And we couldn't find a lot of evidence when we were building our document to support it. However, anecdotally, uh, when we talk to our dermatologist, and Elena, I'm so happy to say that, to hear that, you know, you were saying that it's safe and it is one possible solution for cleansing the, for cleansing the face. So we have been having people use the hypochlorous acid solution on their face because we know that it really doesn't seem to impede wound healing, that is not as um, 
irritating to the skin as some of the other antiseptics. We've had some nurses who've been using um, various other solutions on their face and have actually caused injury to their face just from using, um, you know, uh, like a Dakin solution on their face. So essentially bleach on their face. They've actually caused quite a bit of skin irritation with that. So, you know, I think that this is something that we need to look at and that we need to have some consensus on. And we are looking at building an international consensus document around this. And that is one of the points that we will be discussing. Oh, great. Well, I look forward to, to seeing that consensus document, Kim. Okay, the next question we received was about uh, the kind of dressings healthcare professionals should be using as a preventative measure. So prevention rather than management. So perhaps uh, um, each of you would like to give your opinion on the use of dressings as prevention. Um, Karen? Sam, it's a really interesting question, this, and it's asked quite a lot. And I think we need to go back to what Kim talked about earlier about keeping the skin clean, well hydrated and moisturised. Kim was saying that, you know, try and keep your skin very clean as you would do normally, but put your moisturiser on before you head out to work. Not always possible sometimes because of things that are going on at home, but we're recommending at least 30 minutes before applying your PPE. And if it's all possible to try and avoid the use of dressings because it may well compromise the fit of the mask. Mm. But if you do have to use a dressing underneath, then I would say choose a product that's as thin as possible, so as low profile as possible. Mm-hmm. And it is preferable if that product's got a tapered edge as well. But again, just as we said earlier, you're going to have to ensure that your equipment is fitted after you've put those products in place. Mm-hmm. And we've talked to Kim's talks about this as well, about PPE being in quite short supply in some areas. So make sure that you remember to do that. Otherwise, you may not have any equipment to use afterwards. Ensure that your skin and your mask and your visor are clean as well before applying, obviously. But you need to get this balance for the stability of the product against potential skin damage. Mm. And an adhesive product, if somebody chooses that thinking, oh, that'll be good, it'll stick to the skin, it may prevent slippage. But then you might have possible leakage. You could get even worse damage when you come to take the dressing off as well. Mm -hmm. So consider, I would say, the use of skin barriers before applying and use a silicone adhesive unless obviously you've got a known allergy to that. And these dressings should be removed and replaced at each doffing because they're going to become contaminated as well. Mm -hmm. So it really is, from my point of view, is consider if you need that dressing. If you do, choose the one that's the thinnest as possible with a tapered edge and put them in place before you have your mask fitted. When you come to remove it, if you've got an adhesive on there, you might want to use an adhesive remover just to protect your skin because your skin may have been intact. Before putting the dressing on, you don't then want to damage it by ripping the dressing off. Okay. Thank you, Karen. Um, and, and Kim, same question for you as dressings in terms of as a preventative measure for PPE damage. And so to build on what Karen was saying, you know, certainly, you know, the, can't stress enough the need to be refitted for your mask after you have uh, you know, any time that you put any type of dressing on. I think it's important that we do distinguish between the N95s or airtight masks versus the loose uh, surgical type masks, so the looser fitting masks. 
because we have much more leeway if we are wearing and you know a surgical type mask and we know that for the most part we don't need n95s with this particular pandemic so you know, for the generalist nurse who is not in intensive care or is not in an area where they're intubating patients, chances are they will be wearing the looser fitting. But we have the added problem of we often have nurses with sores around their ears from the loops from the those surgical masks. So in those cases, they'll either use, as Karen said, the soft silicone, or some nurses are using thin hydrocolloids on their ears. Um, you know, just a caution with the hydrocolloids, because we do, like Karen, we're recommending that these dressings be removed every time that the PPE is being removed. Mm-hmm. So if you're using a product like a hydrocolloid, well, these are not designed to be changed daily, uh, mm-hmm. and you can cause damage to your skin. We have had some instances where nurses have found that they uh, don't like the silicone, so they have been using the low-profile hydrocolloids. And what they've been doing is that they've been taking a chlorhexidine or a stanhexidine solution and actually cleansing off the outer aspect of the um, hydrocolloid after they take their mask off. Mm. We have no studies on that. We don't know how effective that is, but at least they are taking some steps towards, uh, you know, decreasing any any, uh, contamination on those dressings. So, you know, that, but that, you know, we have to be very cognizant between the types of masks we're using. And if certainly if someone's using an airtight mask, such as an N95, then any dressing they put on there can potentially decrease their um, efficacy. So then they need to be retested. Mm-hmm. We do have some nurses as well who are using uh, film barriers on their skin, and they're finding that that's really decreasing any kind of friction from the mask moving and that they're not having any skin issues with it. The only caution is that they make sure that they do not use the spray versions of them because it's going to be close to their eyes, obviously, yeah. and they let them dry completely before they put on any PPE. Okay, that's interesting, Kim, and a really important point about distinguishing between different masks. Um, And Elena, um, in terms of dressings and prevention of PPE damage, um, what's been your thoughts on that? I completely agree with Kim and Karen. I won't add anything new, but I would like to highlight that tension should be definitely avoided during the application of these dressings and removal should be very, very careful to reduce the risk of epidermal damage because this frequent donning and doffing of dressings may abrade the most superficial layer of the skin. And this is quite frequent between professionals. So, but I completely agree with what has been said. It's interesting. It just may be a follow up question um, is whether anyone is collecting data, data on. Um, healthcare injuries related to PPE. Is there some sort of data collection going on, Karen, that you are aware of? Um, at the moment, Sam, there is loads and loads of research going on. And I think that we're going to see many papers that will be published probably within the next few weeks that have been looking at this area. Right. When the pandemic eventually wears itself out, yeah. then I suspect there'll be quite a lot of um, qualitative research being undertaken as well, asking staff, what, what the issues have been, how mm. they've managed, and trying to get some really good incidence and prevalence data as well. 
Okay, thanks, Karen. Kim, any data collection in Canada? We do have a number of our acute care centers that are monitoring the number of injuries. And as Karen said, you know, we're expecting that we will see quite a few publications, particularly looking on the along the prevalence to see, you know, how extensive is the problem. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, there's going to be a lot of qualitative studies and Hopefully this will change. The one good thing that will come out of this pandemic is that it will really highlight some of the issues that healthcare workers go through when they have to wear PPEs for a prolonged period of time and that we'll find better ways for preventing and managing. Yeah, it's a really good point. Thank you. Okay, moving on to the next question. Um, we have received a number of questions related to skin allergies and allergic contact dermatitis that may be related to PPE. Um, and one area that received a number of questions was related to skin allergies and allergic contact dermatitis that could be caused by PPE. And I wondered if you had any recommendations for the prevention and management of hand dermatitis in particular related to PPE. I know it's something we've touched on previously in the questions, but Elena, do you want to talk about um, this issue about contact dermatitis and particularly um, hand dermatitis? Contact hand dermatitis is a problem that was already common among healthcare professionals, but which has increased exponentially in recent weeks. Contact hand dermatitis may be allergic or irritant, but the most frequent type by far is irritant dermatitis. So this is due to, well, we've just talked about that, excessive washing, the continuous use of hydroalcoholic solution over overlapping gloves, and all these together alter the hydrolipidic skin protection. So it's obvious that in these days, frequently washing can't be avoided, but drying by patting instead of rubbing may help to reduce skin damage. The ideal thing is to apply the moisturizer frequently, we've talked uh, about that uh, before, and take advantage of the moments we are not working in the hospital. And if the application of moisturizing products is not enough and erythema scaling lichenified lesions with fissures appear, it's important to look for dermatological assessment. And the use of topical corticosteroids of medium-high potency for some weeks will help to control the outbreak. It shouldn't be forgotten that, as in any case of irritant dermatitis, if it's triggered can't be eliminated, as it is in this case, obviously. The response to the treatment or its duration will be very variable. And we have to take into account that people with chronic dermatitis, such as atopic dermatitis, are most affected and the treatment can be uh, longer. So these are general recommendations. Thank you, Elena. Okay, so moving on, um, the Canadian guidelines recommend using hand cream with at least 70% fat content. Kim, I wondered if you wanted to elaborate on that. And Elena, can you comment on this from a dermatology perspective? Certainly. So these guidelines came from, said our, so Canada is divided into provinces. The province I live in is the province of Ontario. And we have provincial guidelines that were developed by our provincial infection control and policy network in collaboration with the, uh, the provincial public health department. And they, in 2014, published some best practice recommendations around hand hygiene and care. 
And within those recommendations, and these were based on input from infection control experts as well as dermatologists, they were recommending that as part of that hand hygiene is that hands are moisturized regularly at least in at least an hour before applying any type of PPE and that the that the moisturizer be allowed to um, be absorbed well into the hands before donning any gloves so that it's well absorbed and as Elena already touched on the idea of applying the moisturizer before um, before bed and applying cotton gloves to help with the absorption and one of the recommendations that came out of this document as well is that best hand creams are ones that have a fat content of approximately 70%. And the idea, uh, from my understanding, is that this will provide more moisturizer to the hands. Okay, thank you, Kim. So, Elena, from your perspective, what do you think? There's a wide variety of emollients that can be recommended and used. And it is widely accepted that they can improve hydration, prevent it, and help repair the skin barrier. However, the evidence is limited regarding clinical efficacy of any specific formulation. And in general, no agreed recommendations can be made. But broadly speaking, fatty emollients are the most recommended ones to prevent and manage hand irritant dermatitis. And these fatty emollients have an occlusive function because they provide a layer of oil on the surface of the skin to slow water loss. Consequently, they increase the moisture content of the stratum corneum. Ointments, which include a white soft paraffin, are more occlusive than creams. So we will prefer ointments uh, rather than creams in very dry skin. Okay, thank you. That's very really useful. Kim, did you want to follow up on that question or does that, uh, does no, that I think that, So I think that Elena definitely, um, you know, brought up a very good point in terms of ointments being, you know, better than, than creams. You know, one of the issues that we've run into is that nurses are more reluctant to use ointments uh, prior to, you know, going to work because then their hands are greasy. They're more apt to do it when they're at home and they can put on the cotton gloves. You know, one question that I do have for Elena is given that, uh, you know, the base products of many creams, do you think that by recommending creams then that perhaps we're seeing an increase in um an irritant dermatitis just based on the the compounds in the cream versus an ointment. In fact, regarding components of creams, it's very difficult to give uh, general recommendations. So what I would recommend is avoiding perfumes, but generally, if you have very dry skin, emollients and uh, um, moisturizers with, uh, for instance, white soft paraffin should be used and other products such as glycerin, urea that are very typical components of moisturizing creams uh, are also very interesting. But uh, I would uh, recommend these moisturizing creams for not that dry skin conditions. Thank you. Uh, so we're moving on to our last question, actually. Uh, the last question relates to whether any of you have any experience in using any type of special textile material to minimise the secondary effects of using PPE, in particular the gloves or the masks. 
Um, any of you aware of any research that's going on in this area in terms of textiles and materials? Karen, anything you're aware of? So yes, Sam, there's quite a lot going on at the moment. Schools of Art and Design and Engineering within universities are all looking at this issue because they know that we need something that is going to cause less damage, but it's going to be equally as effective from a material perspective. Mm. And this is happening globally. And again, we're going to be seeing a lot of research coming out very soon on that. But many researchers are actually investigating 3D printing of um, masks in particular so that we can have made-to-measure masks, and that should help prevent skin damage as well. So I think it's quite an exciting time, really, for our textile colleagues and engineering colleagues Mm. who are going to be able to work really closely with healthcare professionals so that we'll be able to have solutions to real-world research problems. Okay, thank you, Karen. And Elena, um, in terms of any special textiles or materials, is there any work and research going on that you know of? Yes, it is. And first of all, I have to say that, uh, as I see it, research on special textile materials is essential to prevent and treat contact dermatitis. And a Spanish company from Valencia has actually developed protective and therapeutic gloves with a technology called Regenerative. And this technology helps to maintain a correct balance of moisture in the skin. And thanks to its weaving system, it's extremely soft to the touch and has antibacterial properties. Regenerative technology is based on spinning with viscose and kitten, interlaced with the second weave of silver ionized polyamide. And, well, I have to confess that this wasn't something new for me because uh, for years uh, in our clinic, we've been recommending socks with this textile material to be used under compression garments uh, in patients with dermatitis or skin fragility. And uh, we've tested these uh, material, uh, these gloves with very good results in terms of tolerance and adaptability. Time will tell with uh, clinical studies and so on. And this company is also developing protective masks with this technology. So we have to wait for studies, but uh, it's very interesting. It's sounding a little bit expensive, uh, but I'm sure, um, you know, in terms of costs, uh, that will be taken into consideration. And Kim, I guess you mentioned the the problems of getting PPE in Canada, uh, but is there also work going on looking at different textiles and materials that you know of? So I know that they're in the engineering departments at our universities, like they are elsewhere in the world. Certainly, you know, the bench scientists are looking at this. Um, Costs will always be a factor in Canada in terms of, you know, how accessible these uh, types of products will be. But I think it's very exciting. And I'm hoping that, you know, as we these things get into market, that the price of them will come down and that they will be readily available. And I, you know, I think that we have to look at the silver lining of this pandemic. And I think one of the things is that we a lot of great science is going to come out of this. Okay. Well, thank you all. I'd like to thank you for your time today. Um, And I do hope we've been able to answer many of the queries raised as part of the webinar. You've been listening to the Yuma podcast, Skin Injuries Related to Personal Protective Equipment, Prevention and Management. If you want to learn more about the Yuma's activities, you can visit our website, www.yuma.org, or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, 
LinkedIn or Instagram by searching for at Yuma Wound. Yuma organises the largest annual wound management conference in Europe. The next Yuma conference is due to be held in London from the 18th to the 20th of November 2020. Please be sure to save this date. Thank you and goodbye.